0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is week 11, intro African-American studies. We're talking about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. I'm just going to go through the introduction here, and um, really, I mean, it's election day, and we start with the first sentence here, "Jarvius Cotton cannot vote like his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather. He has been denied the right to participate in our our electoral democracy. Cotton's family tree tells the story of several generations of black men who were born in the United States, but who were denied the most basic freedom that democracy promises, the freedom to vote for those who will make the laws and rules that govern one's life. Cotton's great-great-grandfather could not vote as a slave. His great-grandfather was beaten to death by the Ku Klux Klan for attempting to vote, His grandfather was prevented from voting by Klan intimidation. His father barred from voting by poll taxes and literacy tests. Today, Jarvis Cotton cannot vote because he, like many black men in the United States, has been labeled a felon and is currently on parole. The more things change, says Michelle Alexander, the more things stay the same. Um, She goes on to talk about. Uh, In each generation, the new tactics have been used for achieving the same goals, goals shared by the founding fathers. Denying African-American citizenship was deemed essential to the formation of the original union. And, And what she's talking about here is that America as a nation was founded on principles of racial segregation, on principles of white supremacy. And that has not appreciably changed in any shape or form, or in any regards, it's changed shape, um, that hasn't changed since the very beginning. And, um, and I'll draw your attention to this idea um, that another black philosopher has come up with, uh, Charles Mills, has talked about this notion of the racial contract. And um, you know, a lot of people are going out and voting today. I saw some estimates, maybe 150 million People, by the end of today, will have voted either in person or, or I mean, I dropped off my ballot last week, um, you know, early voting, absentee voting. But we're looking at one of the biggest turnouts since 1908, which, of course, was in the height of the Jim Crow era. Um, and African-Americans are going to be underrepresented in that total vote count, as they have been underrepresented in terms of voting in every single presidential election in all of American history. Why is that the case? Um, and, you know, I've talked a little bit about African-American history as being like not just one sort of steady sort of progression up the ladder of equality, but there are peaks and there are valleys, there are successes and triumphs, and then there are backlashes to the successes and triumphs. Charles Mills talks about this historical pattern as as what he calls a racial contract. And, and you know, voting is is an exercise of what other social theorists have called a social contract this idea that you know we give up certain freedoms in order to have a government for example we give up certain freedoms in order to be able to vote for elected officials to represent us in government so that our voices may be heard and this is all what you know John Locke for example would call a social contract Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously thinks of social contracts as a foundation of democratic principles well, Charles Mills thinks that democracy, as it is practiced in the modern world, as it was developed and formed in Europe and the United States, for example, had this racial aspect to it as well. What he calls the racial contract, and the racial contract for Charles Mills is essentially this 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 sort of implicit agreement between rich whites and and poor whites to exclude blacks and other racial minority groups from democratic processes, from um, a full and equitable life in a, in a given society where where these rules exist. And um, and once again, for Mills, this is a hallmark of, of all modern democracies, this notion of a racial contract. And we could see the racial contract play itself out throughout American history, going back to the days of Jamestown and and, and Francis Bacon, even before or I think it was, Bacon was his name, Nathaniel Bacon, I think, not Francis Bacon. He was a, um, he was like a medieval philosopher. Nathaniel Bacon led this rebellion in Jamestown against the established order. And he was trying to get, there were already enslaved Africans. There was lots of poor indentured servants. Um, and he was trying to get those groups to to get together and sort of overthrow the established colonial regime that was answering to the king, that that was very much situated upon, you know, England's very very rigid class structure at the time, and that Daniel Bacon's rebellion was put down in part because rich whites convinced poor whites that they would be acting out of their best interest if they allowed freedom for African slaves. Um, once again, we see this happen again at the end of the Civil War. We have emancipation. We have the end of slavery. Um, and we have, with reconstruction, this golden opportunity to 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 um, really really put 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 uh, racial inequality to rest. Right, this is something Du Bois writes about. And so as a black folk, he's like, "Look, all we thought we needed was freedom, and we thought everyone everything would be fine after that." So did a lot of white people too. But that turns out not to be the case. Um, we see rich whites, the the deposed ruling class in the South. Once again, forming alliances with poor whites in the South um, through the creation of groups like the Ku Klux Klan um, and through the through the creation of Jim Crow laws, once again, to create a new system of racial control to replace um, the system of racial control um, symbolized by slavery or, or um, embedded within slavery. And so fast forward to the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement. Once again, we had the overthrow of this system of racial control, um, and and you know we got the Civil Rights Act, we have got the Voting Rights Act, um, you know these these measures that are in, that are intended to safeguard black equality and black civic participation in democratic life, um, and once again we have a backlash, and we could thank George Wallace in part for this backlash. George Wallace is like, hey Nixon, you know I think you can recruit a lot of a lot of white Southerners, especially poor white Southerners. To join the Republican Party, which at this point was um, being slowly taken taken over by corporate interests, by by um, upper class interest, and and this is indeed what happens. Once again, we see um, rich whites align with poor whites to exclude African Americans and other racial minorities from voting um, through the institution of a new, through the imposition of a new system of racial control. According to Michelle Alexander here. That takes the place of Jim Crow, which she calls the new Jim Crow. An extraordinary percentage, she says, of black men in the United States are legally barred from voting today, just as they have been throughout most of American history. They're also subject to legalized discrimination in employment, housing, education, public benefits, and jury service, just as their grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents once were. What has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than with the language we use to justify it in the era of colorblindness. And we've got new frameworks of understanding what race is as we move through time. And now we're in this era of colorblindness where, because the civil rights movement ended racial inequality and ended Jim Crow, we have moved past issues of race and problems of race in America. Um, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. And, and I don't want to—I don't want to say that this is the first time that that the law and that criminal justice systems have been used in the service of of a larger system of racial control. But, but these were always justified through other laws that were explicitly about racial difference, and so this is the, this is the main difference that, that Michelle Alexander is outlining for us. So we don't. We don't think about race anymore. Rather than we lie on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals, and then once that label is attached then we can engage in all the other kinds of discrimination and segregation that were legally permissible under Jim Crow. And that is, in fact, what has happened um, through through, through what Michelle Alexander calls mass incarceration. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways that it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination Denial of the right to vote, educational opportunity, food stamps, public benefit, exclusion from jury service are suddenly legal. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely, as she argues, redesigned it. You know, I think it's worth noting, you know, thinking about you know, her discussion starting here on page four, that it's um that she came to these conclusions, like not not just like not based on no evidence or anything. I mean, she's a civil rights lawyer working for the ACLU and and has not had and this was not on her radar, but the more she spent time in this office and she worked at the ACLU in uh, where, where in northern California, so she would have been based in the bay area, so in the same um, sort of area as as um, as, fruit, as the events of Fruitvale station in, in San Francisco. Um, by the time I left the ACLU, I come to suspect that I was wrong about the criminal justice system. It was not just another—it was not just another institution infected with racial bias, but a different beast entirely. And and just—you know—I haven't looked at this in a minute, but but she, she makes this point um somewhere in here that that even African American leaders and groups like the NAACP had sort of missed what was going on for for a couple of decades and 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 it was more just thinking that well we've got this like these traces of racial bias that even after the civil rights movement like linger within many of our social institutions within many of our our governmental institutions but for for michelle alexander that's it's it's more it's more focused than that it's more insidious than that, and it's it's much more of a tighter system of control than what like, a lingering racial bias would suggest. Those of us who have viewed the world from a comfortable distance yet sympathize with the plight of the so-called underclass, she's speaking here to like well-meaning liberals, tend to interpret the experience of those caught up in the criminal justice system, primarily through the lens of popularized social science, attributing the staggering increase in incarceration rates in communities color, to the predictable, though unfortunate, consequences of poverty, racial segregation, and unequal educational opportunities, the presumed realities of the drug market, often the mistake in the belief that most drug dealers are black or brown. Um, and really, she, she really pinpoints the war on drugs as one of the major mechanisms in the system of mice incarceration. Um, these are all other interpretations for the steep rise in incarceration rates we see. Starting in the early 1980s and really moving up till 2010, um, the American prison population explodes to become the biggest prison population in the world, both by numbers and in terms of the percentage of the population being locked up. Um, so even like, like this is something that is missed, not just, you know, not by, um not by conservatives, for example, not by conservative thinkers. In fact, this is um, going back to these conversations that happened between George Wallace and Nixon. This is definitely a concerted effort from the, conservatives, from the conservative side. But it, it took observers like decades to kind of catch on to this. This is something that Michelle Alexander is kind of shocked by when she's looking back on all of this. Most people assume that the war on drugs was launched in response, for example, to the crisis. Caused by crack cocaine in inner city neighborhoods, this view holds that the racial disparities in drug convictions, as well as the rapid explosion of the prison population, re- reflect nothing more than the government's zealous efforts to bring to address rampant drug crime in poor minority areas. But as we know, um, I don't know if you've, you know if we looked at these statistics, but um, black folks don't use drugs at higher rates than white folks do. Um, and, and commit drug crimes, um, and drug crimes are pretty similar across all racial groups. This view, this view that, well, we're locking up more people because there are more people out there doing bad things, while understandable given the sensational media coverage of crack in the 1980s and 90s is simply wrong. The publicity surrounding crack cocaine led to the dramatic increase in funding for the drug war, but the drug war had already been launched by Ronald Reagan, <laughs> um, and so it really, you know, it was kind of fortuitous timing, and in fact, um, the CIA did play a role in, in bringing more cocaine into the streets that was later turned into crack. Um, the CIA eventually admitted in 1988 that guerrilla armies had actively supported in Nicaragua were smuggling illegal drugs into the United States, drugs that were making their way onto the streets of inner city black neighborhoods in the form of crack cocaine. By the way, these actions by the CIA in in Central American countries like Nicaragua, El Salvador, for example, also created political destabilization, which um, has contributed, um, along with global warming, to to very untenable living situations. Which is why a lot of these folks are trying to now leave those countries and come to the United States. And so and so, I think. We haven't talked about the drug war very much in here. It is part and parcel of the system of mass incarceration that Michelle Alexander is talking about. Here's some numbers for you. In less than 30 years, the US penal population exploded from around 300,000 or more to more than 2 million, with drug convictions accounting for the majority of the increase. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world not just comparing the United States to like Western liberal countries like France and Germany and other places in Western Europe. Um, but we're talking about places like more, more people than places like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, there are 93 people in prison for every 100,000 people in the United States. We're looking at 750 people per 100,000. And what is most striking about this is the racial dimension. Um, The vast majority of our prison population is African-American. African-Americans make up all, I don't think she has rates in here. Here we go. The United States imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did at the height of apartheid. There are more black people in prisons right now than there were slaves in the South back in the day in Washington, D.C., It is estimated that three out of four young black men and nearly all those in the poorest neighborhoods can expect to serve time in prison. Similar rates of incarceration can be found in black communities across America. So these are the numbers. These are the facts. What explains these? Is it that black people commit more crime? No, right. This is this is not played out in both the research and any of the research that, like sociologists have been doing for the past 30 years. Sociologists, however, have frequently observed that governments use punishment primarily as a tool of social control, and thus the extent or severity of punishments is often unrelated to actual crime patterns. As Michael Tonnery explains, governments decide how much punishment they want, and these decisions are in no simple way related to crime rates. Between 1960 and 1990, for example, official crime rates in Finland, Germany, and the United States were close to identical, yet the United States incarceration rate quadrupled, and the Finnish rate declined by 60%, right? So when we think about massive incarceration in the United States, it's not because more crimes are happening. It's not because America has more criminals than other countries, right? The German rate was stable in that period. So the German rate didn't change of incarceration, and Finland fell by 60%. The U.S. rate quadrupled, even though Finland, Germany, and the United States all had similar crime rates for the same period of time. Today, due to recent declines, U.S. crime rates have dipped below international norm. We have less crime than other, than other places around the world, yet we now boast an incarceration rate that is 6 to 10 times greater than any other industrialized nation. No other nation comes close other than Russia, which, is, of course, is an authoritarian regime. I mean, if you say anything about about Putin, you'll either get put in prison or, like, poisoned by one of his agents, because that's what happens. The Stark and sobering reality, and here we have a possible thesis for the book here. The Stark is, on page 8, the Stark and sobering reality is that for reasons... Largely unrelated to actual crime trends, the new Jim Crow has nothing to do with how much crime is being committed. The American penal system has emerged as a system of social control unparalleled in world history. While the size of the system alone might suggest it would touch the lives of most Americans, and she does talk about how plenty of white people, especially poor white people, get caught up in this, the primary targets of its control can largely be defined by race. And, and what's so astonishing here is that even in the 1970s, it was thought that prisons would become a thing of the past. As late as 1973, the National, the National Advisory Commission on Criminal Justice Standards and Goals issued a recommendation in 1973 that no new institutions, prisons, should be built and existing institutions for juveniles should be closed. The prison, the reformatory in the jail, achieved only a shocking record of failure, they said, there is overwhelming inst- evidence that these institutions create crime rather than prevent it. So what happened? 1973? Oh, wait, this is during the Nixon presidency. This is during that shift, that shift in the, elector- the electorate, right? When the South starts moving to the Republican Party, because the Republican Party is positioning itself as the law and order party, right? Nixon ran on this law and order ticket as a, as a result of Um, widespread riots and looting and massive social protest in the late 1960s, that we're talking about how, well, we've got the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, but no real change is occurring. Does any of this sound familiar to us right now? It should, right? Um, The attention of civil rights advocates has largely been devoted to other issues such as affirmative action. And so it's because of this, like we're focused on affirmative action, we're focusing on sort of getting the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act the teeth that they need to actually have some success. This other, this other, this new system of racial control um, is very much flying under the radar. I mean, even Michelle Alexander is talking about this here on page 12. Only years after working on criminal justice reform did my own focus finally shift, and then the rigid caste system slowly came into view. Eventually, it became obvious. Now it seems odd that I could not see it before. Well, I think it was it was hidden in many ways. It was hidden through colorblindness, and it was hidden through the stigmatization of the criminal in American society as well. If someone commits a crime, it's like they're a throwaway person, especially if they commit a heinous crime, right? It's like their lives don't matter anymore. Um, lock them up, throw away the key, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, deny them voting rights. Um, and then once, once we, we actually institute the war on drugs and start giving punishments out to drug offenses that we would normally give out to murderers and rapists, right, then it becomes easy to disenfranchise huge segments of the population. There's, there's always been a problem with like police brutality and racism in police forces. So that was already sort of a built-in, um, a built-in catalyst to, to 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 cast this net, right? Um, justified through drug laws, justified by the fact that well, we, if you're a criminal, then you don't matter, right? The stigmatization of the criminal, um, coupled with colorblindness, I think both of these works work to hide um, the development of mass incarceration as a system of racial control from the people. Um, who, who, who should have been catching on to this before anyone else, and, and, um, and so really, you know, was able to hide in that way. It may be helpful in attempting to understand the basic nature of the new caste system to think of the criminal justice system, the entire collection. And I think this is an important point. I've mentioned this before. The police are just the tip of the iceberg here. To think of the criminal justice system, the entire collection of institutions and practices that comprise it, not as an independent system, but rather as a gateway into a much larger system of racial stigmatization and permanent marginalization. The term mass incarceration refers not only to the criminal justice system, but also to the larger web of laws, rules, and policies and customs that control those labeled criminals, both in and out of prison. Once released, former prisoners inhabit and enter a hidden underworld of legalized discrimination and permanent social exclusion. They are members of America's new underclass, right? Excluded from society um, based on laws and and legality. Once again, the police are just the tip of this iceberg. But, but you know, let's say. Let's say you get caught as a black man, your third drug offense, and maybe it's a minor thing, or maybe it's your second drug offense, but you've got a couple other infractions. Remember, um, black men are, are are way more likely to be stopped for anything and, and approached by police officers for anything, just by being black, driving while black, than than the rest of the population, especially white people. Um And so you're in a state where there's a three strikes law. So even if your three offenses are relatively minor, the fact that you have three of them means that you're going to go away to prison for a while. You may get out on parole early, but you'll be labeled a felon on that third strike. Um, And so you'll leave prison and prison's a terrible place. It's a dehumanizing place and it is a breeding ground for further crime and corruption. Um, But you leave prison, let's say you get out of that okay, you've got a parole officer, Um, you're trying to find a job, but you're trying to, um, you know, secure a job interview, you fill out your job applications, and almost every job application, there's a box. Have you been convicted of a felony? You have to check yes. That would disqualify you from many job opportunities, from almost all job opportunities, and definitely from job opportunities where you would be able to, like, I don't know, afford rent in a nice area of t- a nicer area of town or a decent area of town. Um, take care of kids if you have them right you're not going to be able to get one of those jobs. Um, speaking of trying to find a place to live uh, you will have to find out you will have to check out check boxes um, labeling you as a felon when you are looking for places to live and applying to live in apartment complexes or houses. Once again, that will disqualify you from many of these residences, so you're going to be forced to live in bad areas of town, right? And and because of the lack of opportunity available to you, one of the only means of getting by, getting ahead, is to participate once again in criminal activities, um, and therefore you end right back up in prison. You can't vote during this whole time. There's a target on your back from the police during this whole time. Um... Once again, very much controlled and excluded, right, by society as a result of this. You've got to go to parole hearings. You've got to meet with people. Um, you're never sort of away from the gaze of, of the man, as as the hippies used to say back in the 60s. So just think think about what happens when you have to check that box. You know, have you been convicted of a felony? The current system of control permanently locks a huge percentage of the African-American community out of the mainstream society and economy as a result of this. Mass incarceration operates as a tightly networked system of laws, policies, customs, and institutions that operate collectively, right? So it's not just the police, it's also judges, it's also like parole boards, it's also prisons, Um, it's also like lawmakers and legislatures who, who sign off on tough on crime bills and who support tough on crime bills. Joe Biden was one of these people back in the day, hopefully um by all accounts he would like to make amends if he is elected president i don't know how much amends he can make he wasn't quite as bad as hillary was in um in championing tough on crime policies that was one reason the democrats were able to have so much success in the 1990s especially in southern states the recent decisions by some state legislatures most notably new york's to repeal or reduce mandatory drug sentencing laws in New York, I believe, has ended stop and frisk as well. Police are still killing black people in New York and still engaging in acts of brutality towards protesters. Um, Have led some to believe that the system of racial control described in this book is already fading away. Such a conclusion, I believe, is a serious mistake. Many of the states that have reconsidered their harsh sentencing schemes have done so not out of concern for the lives and families that have been destroyed, but by these laws or the racial dimensions of the drug war, but out of concern for bursting state budgets in a time of economic recession. So no one really cares about mass incarceration as a system of racial control. They care that it's expensive, but they want this. They still want the racial control. In other words, the racial ideology that gave rise to these laws remains largely undisturbed. We could see this in, in how the Trump administration has portrayed Black Lives Matter protesters, Um, Looters and rioters are the languages that you most see describing these folks marching in the streets for racial justice um, on conservative media outlets. Um, There has been a lot of violence. I don't condone the violence, um, but I can also understand the frustration. Um, Maybe if we had a better system in place to deal with racial injustices committed by police, then there would not be rioting and looting. That's just a thought. Oh, what else here? What else? So what are some of the more specific um, comparisons that Michelle Alexander makes? How can she justify calling mass incarceration the new Jim Crow? Skepticism about the claims made here are warranted. We are right to question the sort of strength of this argument. There are important differences to be sure between mass incarceration, Jim Crow, and slavery. Um, And we need to know what these differences are. Many of the differences are not as dramatic as they initially appear, however others serve to illustrate the ways in which systems of racialized control have managed to morph and evolve and change um, and adapt to changes in the political, social, legal context over time. And when we think more about the concept of race here, this is another example of how race is socially constructed and how meanings of racial difference change over time how systems of racial control change over time as society changes over time what is to be done asked Michelle Alexander what can we do to combat mass incarceration and the new jim crow well she says you know jim crow wouldn't have ended without the civil rights movement <sighs> Likewise, the notion that the new Jim Crow can ever be dismantled through traditional litigation and policy reform strategies, like, let's go through, like, the proper legal channels to make changes here. Um, She doesn't think that that's going to happen. If we continue to tell ourselves the popular myths about racial progress, for example, that the civil rights movement ended racism, or worse yet, if we say to ourselves that the problem of mass incarceration is just too big, too daunting, for us to do anything about it, then history will judge us harshly. A human rights nightmare is occurring on our watch. She says we need a new, a new social movement that targets mass incarceration, right? That understands what mass incarceration truly is and is willing to get out there and march in the streets and protest in order to effect real social change. And in the, and this book comes out when I think in 2010. And not two years later, you know, we have the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I th- I have to think that this book um, has been widely read. And I have to think that this book had played some small part in in the birth of Black Lives Matter, um, because she, this, there was no there, there was no movement against police brutality. Um, no, no concerted effort against mass incarceration when Michelle Alexander is writing this Um and, and, and now, of course, right, we've got this more or less consolidated message um, coming out of protests, right? Black Lives Matter in the context of police brutality, in the context of mass incarceration, in the context of democratic participation, which I hope we're all engaging in today or have already engaged in. A new consensus must be forged about race and the role of race in defining the basic structure of our society. If we hope ever to abolish the new Jim Crow, this new consensus must begin with dialogue, a conversation that fosters a critical consciousness. A key prerequisite to effective social action. This book is an attempt to ensure that the conversation does not end with nervous laughter, right? This book lays out the stakes for us. And 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 we should thank Michelle Alexander for that, for like for kind of putting a name and for putting a description to what is going on right in front of us, but yet hadn't been named and hadn't been described in this way up to this point. All right. Almost to the end of our introduction here, which is the only thing I wanted you to read. Um, So we're going to have a little bit of a shorter podcast for this week. Um, I would have you look at pages 16 through 19. Um, here are the last few chapters here in uh, the last few pages here in the book. She gives a really nice overview of what each chapter is about. And we could think of each of these chapters as being, um, as describing a different component part to mass incarceration. And so we don't have mass incarceration without the prior systems of racial control, slavery and Jim Crow. And so the first chapter kind of talks about this history and how, Histories of Slavery and Jim Crow sort of lead and funnel into the new Jim Crow. Chapter two is about the war on drugs, which is the major catalyst, major catalyst for um, mass incarceration and how it and how it would work to target racial minority groups. Chapter three turns our attention to the role of race in the U.S. criminal justice system. This chapter debunks the notion that rates of black imprisonment can be explained by crime rates. Right. That that. um. That it's not black people who are committing more crimes than others and that's why there's more black people in jail she talks about that here and she makes the point but she she'll provide more specific numbers and data and figures to back that up here in this chapter Um, in short the chapter explains how the legal rules that structure the system guarantee discriminatory results and so They guarantee discriminatory results. Therefore, our legal system is racially biased, right? That's that's the big uh, takeaway that we get from this. And it's not just this lingering thing. It is set up to be this way, um, according to Alexander here. Chapter four considers how the caste system operates once people are released from prison. And this is where I talk about, you know, having to check that box, um, how you're still discriminated against, how you're still excluded from society, even after leaving prison. And this is something that I don't get. Um, That just doesn't make sense to me. It's like the whole idea of prison is that you go and serve your time and, and that's it. Like that, that's your punishment and you should be good to go after that. I thought that was like the whole point of serving time in prison, but it's not. It becomes this label that follows you around even after you serve time. It's a stigma. And, and this is a major component part, and it, and it, and it comes with it, and, and, it, and it is accompanied by legal restrictions. So if you are a felon at any point in your life, you can't vote in many states for the rest of your life. So if you get convicted of a felony when you're 18, you can't vote ever. So just think about that. Um, I just, you know... I, I understand that, that, that crimes need to be punished, but like for forever, (laughs) there's no forgiveness here. Um, so that's just, I I just can't like wrap my mind around how like this is allowed. Um, chapter five, um, goes over the many parallels between mass incarceration and Jim Crow. The federal court system has effectively immunized the current system from challenges, on the grounds of racial bias. And so the court system, even though it is racially biased, doesn't see itself as racially biased. And you can't challenge the racial, the systemic racial bias in the court system. Um, the Supreme Court has repeatedly disallowed challenges of this nature. What you can do is challenge individual instances of racial bias committed by individual actors or individual offices. But this does not get at the heart of the matter, which is the systemic... Racial bias present within the entire system from the top to the bottom and across all sides. Chapter six reflects on acknowledging the presence on what acknowledging the presence of the new Jim Crow means for the future of civil rights activism, advocacy. In short, I argue that nothing short of a major social movement can successfully dismantle the new caste system. Luckily, we have Black Lives Matter now. Um, Luckily, we have Black Lives Matter now. Um, the first, I would say, major challenge to mass incarceration as a system of racial control in the United States. I'm critical of Black Lives Matter because I think at times um, the movement itself focuses once again on these individual instances um, of, of police brutality. And the, I mean, it's important to know the names, right? It's important to know about these incidents, it's important to know about these deaths and about the lives, the individual lives that have been lost. But but we can't. Uh, what's the expression? Lose loot like we can't miss seeing the forest for the trees. I think that's the expression or something. So and so, I think Black Lives Matter once again is is can be faulted at times for for tackling just the tip of the iceberg and maybe could do a better job um, bringing out a more holistic message um, informed by the arguments, more more informed by the arguments michelle alexander presents here all right so this introduction gives us basically a summary of the arguments michelle Dillon makes why they're important why they matter what we need to do to move forward from this um i look forward to discussing this with you in class i don't know if we'll know the results of the election by thursday we will have a pretty good idea of where things stand by thursday i think um so we could talk about that too if y'all want to I hope everyone's doing well, staying safe. Um, there's a lot of new cases out there right now. Actually, I was doing a presentation on this last spring, and I did a little COVID update for, for all of my podcasts last spring once we had to go remote. And I think we're talking about like mid-April. Um, and so I've got numbers here on the first page of my introduction. Um, yeah, mid-April, we we're at 600,000 total cases and 25,000 deaths. A week later, we were at 826,000 cases and 45,000 deaths. Now, of course, we're at 9 million cases, and we're pushing 250,000 deaths. African-Americans, as a result of things like mass incarceration, have been disproportionately affected by this. Um So lots to talk about. I look forward to chatting with you on Thursday. Everyone take care, stay safe, and um, have a great rest of your evening. Bye-bye.